Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Support for Talking Art comes from Quad City Bank and Trust, providing consumer and commercial banking as well as trust and asset management. For more information, visit QCBT.bank or stop by one of QCBT's five locations. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Kevin Jones, the curator for the FIDA Museum at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in Los Angeles about the exhibition Sporting Fashion, Outdoor Girls 1800 to 1960 at the Figgy Art Museum. Hi there, Kevin. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thank you. And and we're so happy you're able to join us today because this show that's at the Figgy now is so interesting. Um, you know, you might, for a moment, when you walk in, think that it's all about fashion, particularly sporting fashion. But very quickly, you come to understand that that history and the quest for women's equality are the more serious issues that are explored here. As a curator, do you see fashion as a means of social commentary? Oh, completely. Uh, the fact that all of us get dressed in the morning and go out to do our business out in society, uh, you know, really speaks to um, uh, the individual, each one of us, uh, as if we're going out at night to a club and we're and we're, we're dressing for ourselves or if we're going out perhaps during the day for work and we're dressing to be part of a collective, you know, it's all about um, that presentation. And it, it doesn't matter if it's high fashion fancy or it's workwear, uh, it's all social commentary. Mm-hmm. Yet you see that the themes of individuality, but then when you when you walk through that um, century and a half of change, you really come to understand the resilience that that was required of women, the resourcefulness. It's there's somewhat of a societal critique, and I, and I love the fact too that this deals with women uh, and their lives that outdoors beyond the the spheres that they were in essence confined to before yes now one of the things that christina johnson she's the uh, associate curator here at the fit museum and my co-curator for the exhibition and the catalog one of the things we wanted to really talk about was that honestly you know women were not confined in a sense like they were never allowed outdoors because somebody was standing at, at the portal, you know, and saying, no, you can't go outside. You know, women had full active lives the way they do now, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Yes, it was different because we dressed differently. We, uh, transportation was different. Science was different. You know, there's all sorts of different things that we enjoy today that not necessarily people in the past enjoyed, particularly uh, women. Uh, and there were different proprieties of how one conducted oneself, how dressing. Um, 100, 150 years ago, men dressed very similarly to the way they do now. Women do not for the most part. So things have changed. However, you know, honestly, if a man was out doing something fun, active, and a woman was interested in doing that as well, she was going to figure out a way. And often it was figuring out a way to do whatever that 
action was, that sport was, was much more creative even than the way men were doing it because they had to figure out how they could do this. The, the equipment, the, the dress, was it only something amongst other women or could it be, you know, a commingled sport? So um, women were out having fun and being active as much as men, because don't forget that, you know, for the most part with this exhibition, we are talking about people with leisure time. You know, you could have the full day for leisure or maybe it was a, a Sunday afternoon of leisure. So there was leisure time invested in, into all of these sports. Um, there were some people, men and women, who basically had no leisure time in their lives. They worked constantly. And so there is a difference here uh, of those who had the ability to, to do these kinds of sporting activities. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, across the board, women were as active as men, um, just sometimes in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. Well, you spent three weeks here in the Quad Cities. Uh, that's a long time installing the show. It was an extensive and, and lengthy installation. And the entire third and fourth floors of the Figgy are literally filled with an enormous number of ensembles and accessories. So how is the exhibition organized? It's on the two floors and the uh, the curators, Josh and Vanessa, they are the ones who actually kind of did the layout for uh, the, the, the gallery since they know their Figgy Museum very well. I don't. This was the first time that I got to visit Davenport and the Figgy Museum. So that was very exciting. And honestly, it took the three weeks because it is such a large show. Indeed, there are more than 480 individual objects uh, that are traveling with the show and splitting them on the two floors does length in the time because we were running up and down the stairs or taking the art freight elevators, you know, <laughs> constantly. Uh -huh. So the the layout, it, the, the show itself and the catalog is broken up into eight themes. So basically there are four themes per floor that you walk around and explore. And it's a really great way of um, digesting you know, the show, because there is a lot to see and a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. There really is. There's more than 40 activities I read. And, uh, you know, one thing that I found interesting is that early in the 19th century, when this begins, things that we would normally not think of as sports, but definitely are outdoors, the um, activities are included, such as promenading was one. Uh, I, I hadn't really thought of that. Gardening, picnicking, we don't consider these to be sports now, but they were ways to get outdoors. Exactly. And that's one of the things that Christina and I wanted to do specifically was to broaden that definition of sportswear, sporting fashion, sports. Because, you know, it's true, 200 years ago, there were activities that women were doing that were physically active out of their familial environment, out of their homes, that were considered sporty in their day we wouldn't necessarily now simply going out for a walk a promenade you know in a, in a garden graveyards were were a really popular place to go have picnics no kidding um and it's to do these kinds of um activities that required an additional layer of clothing that would signal to anybody that you were going out to do something physical um, and so that's how the development of 
what we now know of as sportswear happened. It did come out of the fashion world, you know, and nothing ever just drops out of the sky fully formed. There are fits and starts. You have different areas, different people at different times coming up with ideas for dress. I mean, all of these women were, were entrepreneurs in their day, figuring out what to wear that was appropriate, the materials that they, that they could uh, acquire to do whatever sport they wanted, um, whether they needed to have a lot of movement because of, and, and so they incorporated knitwear into their outfits, or they needed to be warm because it was a cold environment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was lots of things happening um, at different times that then coalesced slowly but surely as the, as the, as the decades progressed to what we now recognize as kind of active everyday sportswear and also sport uniform that's very specific for um, games like, yeah. you know, basketball, tennis. Mm -hmm. Well, in the process of your research, was there a particular activity or sport that captivated you or that piqued your interest or curiosity? There was because it really is the founding of what we think of as sportswear now. Um, and it's the, the writing habit. Mm -hmm. That really is the one of the earliest examples of specific dress but worn by women to do something that everybody would know what she was doing when she walked out of her door. And are you talking like equestrian riding? Equestrian yes. riding. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you know, equestrian, it was very, it could be very formal. It really started in the later part of the 16th century. Now, if you, if you read my opening chapter, I do take this back to the classical era. There is very little before the 18th century about sportswear women and what they wore specifically that has been recorded and you know history forgets what time uh excuse me time forgets what history does not record and it's it's that's why it's so important to like document everything so moving forward you know you think 500 years from now people are going to understand what we did and why we did what we did unfortunately we don't know a lot of that from the classical era so you think of sportswear and sports specific clothing, it really is the late 16th century with equestrian riding wear, riding habits as they developed. Mm -hmm. And it started obviously with women sitting side saddle and riding that way, correct? And it was only later, I think, that they were allowed to ride in divided uh, clothing, what we would consider long pants or trousers. Yes and no. It actually started out with women riding astride. Mm. And then as their clothing developed, women ended up with garments, skirts with a lot of fabric, which really wasn't very conducive to draping the legs over the horse. So it developed into the side saddle. So all that fab fabric could be to one side. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes kind of the norm for women to, to ride side saddle. And you never think of like, well, can a woman ride you know, astride. Yes, she can. Does she? No. Why not? Um, and then by the time you get to the turn of the 20th century, the idea of women riding astride becomes something more commonplace because it's not just the formal riding habits that women were wearing, but also you think of the women who were ranch women who were out literally on the, the plains and they were, they were um, having to ride miles and miles and miles in the saddles. Uh, you know, it, they needed something that was very hard wearing, that was very durable, that was not specifically um, fashionable show off. 
the way it would have been with the, the more gentrified world. Um, and so you do indeed have women riding side saddle. But I tell you, um, even at the highest level of society, and I'm talking the, the queens of countries, Catherine the Great of Russia, Queen Marie Antoinette of France, both of them were painted formal portraits that were exhibited publicly riding astride on horses. So again, this idea that we have that it was just this or just that when it comes to women and what they were wearing for any given reason, specifically sport, outdoor activities, we have to be really careful with kind of drawing that line in the sand. Because I tell you, if a woman was seeing a man doing something and she thought it was great, she was going to figure out a way to do it, even if that included riding a horse astride and she was the queen of France. <laughs> well, I love that. It, you 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 definitely get a sense when you go through this um, through this exhibition about the strength that it required. I, I was amazed at the mountaineering photographs. <laughs> there were there are photos of women literally ascending falls in Yosemite and crossing crevasses uh, yeah. you know, across a glacier in these long skirts with their uh, waist ropes around them. And they were yeah. intrepid and they were fierce and they just Seriously. did it. They yeah. did. I, I'm telling you, there were there were women who were so much braver than any man ever would have been. <laughs> seriously, scaling the side of a mountain. We're not talking about going on a little passive hike up and over a little mound or something. We're literally talking scaling the side of a cliff where if you one little wrong step or one wrong grip and you fall and are seriously hurt or you die. Um, I mean, these women were doing this and they were doing them in skirts. Mm -hmm. I don't know of a man, frankly, <laughs> that would have dared to have done something like that in a skirt. And um, that's why there's a really sensational photo that of these two ladies. We know who they are. Uh, it was 1908. It was in Scotland. And they are literally scaling the side of a mountain and they have their waist ropes on, you know, which is a kind of security. But if you really look at the photo, they're tied to each other at the waist. So if one falls, <laughs> the they're other both one. Going, you know, and I mean, it's kind of amazing. And they are in skirts. Now in the exhibition, we are showing a woman in a divided skirt, which is a type of a bifurcated garment that the front panel buttons to one side to reveal kind of the divided skirt, or you could undo it and flip it over to the other side and rebutton. And then it's like, it looks like just a normal skirt. Mm. Um, it was true that, you know, if men were around in the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, women on the whole, you can never say never, but on the whole were required to wear skirts. If they were amongst all women, then a, a form of Turkish trousers, divided skirt, pantaloons were acceptable. And that's one of the, the, the things that's interesting about that photo of the, of the two women mountaineering is that they were actually, it was an all woman group. And yet they're still in skirts. Hmm. So, you know, these were personal choices. It was not a dictation. It was a personal choice um, within the proprieties of the time. But of course, we always know that every generation is pushing the proprieties that are established for their time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I read in the catalog that there was a fortuitous discovery that inspired you to curate this show. Can can you tell us about that? You found um, a a garment and a and a vintage show. Yeah, in fact, it wasn't even a garment; it was just a piece of cloth. Um, it was at a vintage show, and I normally don't look at scarves. We have a really 
phenomenal scarf collection here. I mean, just really, really beautiful graphic designed pieces. And this scarf was literally across the room and I looked at it and I don't know what it was and it drew me over to it. And it was just this really great design. It's very, it's got a lot of movement going on, lots of colors. And it turns out it's 13 women doing all of these different sports all around this scarf. And the scarf is very, it's, it's large. It's at least three by three at feet. And, um, I thought, oh, that's really neat. And then there's all this kind of scribbling around it. And I was like, what is that? And it says outdoor girl, outdoor girl, outdoor girl, outdoor girl, all over it. And so I called Christina. This was a Sunday morning. And I said, oh, I found this really amazing scarf. This is really, this is really great. And she was kind of surprised because she knows I no normally don't look at those things. And, and she said, well, how much is it? And I said, oh, it's $38. And she's like, buy it. I mean, if you think it's something good for the collection, you know, like $38, it's, you know, buy it. And literally the very moment she said, buy it, the little cartoon light bulb went off over my head. And I, and I said to her on the phone, you know what, we're going to do an exhibition on women's sportswear. Now at that time, we had no idea how big it was going to be, how long it was going to take, what it was going to incorporate, if it was going to be just, you know, a small show in maybe our history gallery, a larger show in all of our gallery space, we, I mean, a book, who knows, you know, um, it was just like, let's do something like this. Well, it was such, there was such serendipity to that, wasn't it? Because that spark, that random find of yours in a in a vintage show show went on to you subsequently amassing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces and that was initially in 2009 in 2015 you established a partnership with the American Federation of the Arts and what did that partnership allow you to do I I cannot praise the American Federation of Arts high too highly I mean they are just marvelous you know this is an organization that has been in existence since 1909 they're a nonprofit headquartered out of new york city and their entire premise is to get the arts out across the united states across the world and specifically to communities that would not necessarily ever have the arts come to them mm -hmm. they're not like you know, Chicago or Los Angeles or New York City, where they have huge museum, multi museums, uh, and so forth, you know, and so I thought this is really amazing. I've never heard of this, 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 this uh, organization and the fact that they're a nonprofit, the fit a museum is a nonprofit, it just seemed really fantastic. And we had to jump through a lot of hoops, you know, we had to, they didn't know who we were. So we had, to, there was a lot of communication going back and forth, Christina, and I had to do a very former portfolio, uh, and so forth. And uh, what what's amazing is that the and our initial contact who uh, is Michelle Hargrave, who is the director of the figgy, and she went to grad school with our director of um, digital uh, and social media here at the FITA Museum, they knew each other. Um, and her, Lee Wishner, who works here, she said, you really should get in contact with these people. I think this is going to be an interesting uh, project, you know, partnership. And she was right. And Michelle left um, pretty soon thereafter. I worked with a woman named Kirsten Pertich, who was as well fantastic. She has since also moved on uh, from the AFA. But uh, it was amazing because truly the, the the project would never have come about the way it is now if it weren't for the AFA. Mm. We could do everything. We could do all the research, find objects, photography, 
all of that nuts and bolts, but they are the ones who then took all of that material, worked with Prestel um, to form the catalog, worked with all of the museums around the country uh, who wanted the show, including the Figgy, and they're the ones who actually made it happen. Mm-hmm. So that's that is in essence how we ended up with this exhibition exhibition right here in Davenport. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm you know, I'm curious about how you sourced so many items on display because there are so many of them. Where did you even start? You know, sporting fashion, sporting wear is not something that you would normally consider a collectible item. Very true. You know, there's not a lot of museums that have collected it. It's not fancy couture ball gowns of very expensive fabrics and hand embroideries and so forth. This is a lot of material worn in the daytime that, you know, a hundred years ago, no one ever thought a museum would want it. Uh, Museums, you know, collected textiles more than they collected fashion. So it was, you know, rare for these things to survive. It's also why it took so long to do this project was to find the objects. You know, one of the things that's tricky is that when you're standing in front of an object, it's sometimes difficult to understand how very, very rare it actually is because you're like, well, look right there, there it is. But you may be looking at the only known extant example. There's no others in other institutions, or if there are others, there there's maybe five in the world that are known. So, you know, a lot of these are very, very rare objects. Also, I have to collect according to the mission statement of the FIDA Museum. I can't just willy-nilly kind of acquire things because we are a design museum. So each object that we collect has to be its best in design, whether it's very fancy or very plain, what does it represent the very best of design within its era Mm. for what it's supposed to be? And that's very important for us. So I was looking at our collection first to see what we had, which was not a lot, and then comparing it with collections around the world looking at the databases to see what what actually is out there in other museums and what isn't in museums, and then contacting every single dealer that I knew around the world, um, private collectors that I knew, auction houses, I mean, you name it. And it wasn't like going out to Target or Bloomingdale's and saying, okay, I need this and this and this and this. We didn't know if we were going to find everything that we needed. You know, this is something that is practically a 24 hour a day thing for many, many years to pull all of these objects together because in the catalog, not just the traveling show, but in the catalog, it's actually over 750 objects. Yeah. Well, the catalog, since you brought that up, we we do need to to mention that because it's absolutely beautiful. The photographs are are extraordinary. It's very detailed. It's it's also very large. It's coffee table sized. Uh, it's around three hundred and forty pages, and it's on 344. sale. Three hundred forty four. Three hundred forty four, and it's on sale at the Figgy Gift Shop. I should That's say. That's right. And you know, it is heavy, but we say, well, that means you can just work out with it. Yes. You know? Oh, you can. I didn't yeah. think about Spend that. Those arms, you know, those shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I actually weighed it. This morning, believe it or not, it's just under six pounds. It's wow. Okay. Yes, it's like a, you know, like one of those smaller dumbbells. But that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And the foreword to the catalog was written by Serena Williams, and Serena, perhaps more than any other modern day athlete, has had to endure endless critiques of her fashion choices on the court. So she yeah. seemed to meet a very um, 
very personally embody the questions and the conversations that this show brings up. Indeed. And her write-up is beautiful. I mean, it's so marvelous. You know, we, we, we stopped the catalog at 1960 because of the timeline, because by the time you get to 1960, everything that a woman wears for sportswear has been invented. The difference for, for us today is the textile technology that's been developed that is then applied to these already designed elements. And um, we wanted to bring the catalog up to the present, you know, and what better than Serena Williams? I mean, she's just a living icon and um, is such a mentor to so many different people around the world, you know, and so we, we had been thinking about, okay, you know, the, for the forward, who, who would we want? And I, literally, I was driving to church one morning and Serena Williams popped into my mind. And I thought, that would be fantastic. Good luck with that. Um, but as it turned out that Kirsten Perchett, who is our, you know, our, our collaborator with the American Federation of Arts, her father is a, a, a sports attorney. And he was able to, to find the, 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 the group of people that Serena works with. We contacted her, talked about the project. She had a lot of faith in us because, you know, it's not like I could give her a catalog to say, hey, look how great this is going to be. And she then agreed to do the forward to the catalog. And I want to tell everybody that she did this at no cost. It was not like we paid a celebrity you know, to write the forward. This was something that she really believed in and she loved it because of course, it will live on into the future and hopefully continue to influence young girls and young women today to keep pressing forward with the things that they're interested in doing out in the world, whether it's passive sport or like Serena Williams, really, really incredibly active. Um, and to and to change, continue to change and, and push forward um, all of these abilities that we all should have completely freely. Mm -hmm. Well, she is she very articulately says in in her foreword, and these were her words actually that it um, she feels the exhibition explores what it means to be truly equal, what it means to be feminine, and it genders role in fashion. So it, it did just seem to mash very well. And she also mentioned that she feels the tennis court is a stage. And yeah. that is that is so true. Um, you know, a, Along with the exhibition, the Figgy staff has been very busy. They've organized a, an extensive array of companion events for this show, ranging from the Quad City Symphony Orchestra's performance. That's scheduled March 23rd. Ballet Quad Cities is doing a performance at the Figgy on April 13th. They're, they have a series of, of uh, women-directed feature-link films. There's there's docent-led tours, a fashion show. The list just goes on and on. And I'm happy to say that you will be returning to Davenport on Thursday, April 20th for a curator talk. And we're yeah. so looking forward to having you back. Yes. Uh, Christina Johnson and I are both flying out uh, to give a behind-the-scenes. Uh, we get a lot of questions, just like, you know, uh, for NPR um, about how is it that we brought this together. And so we want to bring up some of those fun projects, how we found some of the objects uh, behind the scenes of uh, the photo shoots that we did, the research being compiled, working with the AFA. Uh, you know, it's really uh, the, the 
A, B, a, B and C of how uh, you work on an, a project like this. You know, when anybody can do it. You know, this is not this is not something that should be limited to just you know somebody who has a title of curator. If you're interested in working on a project, you know, you just get find a passion. I mean, truly, because this was a passion project for all of us. And, you know, if you've got that passion, you're going to be able to see the project through no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Well, your passion definitely shows through. And we're so grateful for that. And I I wanted to, to finish with a quote that's in your catalog by Claire McCardle. And back in 1956, she wrote this, sports clothes changed our lives, perhaps more than anything else, made us independent women. And, re, you know, reading that line made me pause and really think. I, I have often discounted fashion in a way as something that's that's less important, but this makes you realize how essential it was for us to even right. begin the process of living full and equal lives. Yes. It does matter, and, and it is important. And it's very true, and that's one of the things I want everybody to hopefully take away when they see sporting fashion at the Figgy Museum. You know, these are all actual authentic objects these are none none of them are recreations all of these were worn by women who are now gone and you know but hopefully they'll inspire the future and that's one of the things that christina and i were really cognizant of when we were working on the project was to never compare a woman in the past with a woman in the future as if the future had it better every single woman in this project and in the catalog was the modern woman and she overcame the, the, the obstacles that were in front of her at her time. Just like women today, you are the modern women and you're overcoming obstacles and you're moving forward and your sisters in the future will be looking back on you um, with thanks. And that's just what all of these women did in this catalog. Kevin Jones, thank you so much for bringing this exhibition here and for talking today. It was delightful. Thank you, Carolyn. Sporting Fashion, Outdoor Girls 1800 to 1960 is on display at the Figgy Art Museum in Davenport through May 7th. Don't miss it. To view the full list of associated programming and museum hours, visit figgyartmuseum.org. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal.